open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 14. And I will just note that there is a coloring page uh, drawn by my wonderful wife that is for this passage. It's in the back with the bulletins, so you're welcome to check that out. But we are circling back for one more pass over this text, Acts 14, 21 to 23. We looked at it last Sunday. We're going to look at it in a little more detail this Sunday, not as we did last week in terms of the strength that the gospel brings, but especially in terms of how the church encourages us. So the encouragement that the church brings, why we need the church, or put another way, how to stay Christian. How did Paul and Barnabas strengthen the souls of the disciples? So pay attention to that theme here in Acts 14, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, to Derbe, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your apostles who strengthened the souls of the disciples. We thank you for your church that continues to strengthen our souls week in and week out. Lord, help us to strengthen and encourage one another. Help us to understand that suffering is normal and to live in light of that truth. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide elders for this congregation and for all your churches. And we ask that you would teach us to repose our ultimate faith, our ultimate trust in you. Help us now to listen to your word. Help me to speak it boldly and powerfully so that Christ can be exalted, so that the kingdom of God can be realized as we submit to the rule of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. There are many reasons why we need the church. We're not going to talk about all of them, but we're going to talk about the ones that are in this text. The church strengthens our souls. That's how Luke describes it. The apostles went back, strengthened the souls of the disciples. They did that at cost to themselves. We talked about this last week how they were very close to to Syrian Antioch, where they had started from. But instead of just going back to Syrian Antioch, they turned around and went the long way back around. Remember, I compared it to a trip from here, out to Seattle, up to Vancouver, across to Calgary, down into Montana, and around to Bozeman. You get to Bozeman, and you're only five hours from Gillette, And then you turn around and go back to Calgary. And then to Vancouver, and then to Seattle, and you spend the extra three or four days of driving to come back around that way. That's what Paul and Barnabas did, despite the opposition that they had experienced in Antioch and Iconium and in Lystra. They turned around and went back through those cities so that they could strengthen the souls of the disciples. So our souls get weak, without the apostolic encouragement and teaching that we get in the church. That's the message 
of this text. Without apostolic encouragement and teaching from the church, our souls get weak. So stay in church. Paul and Barnabas followed up with what they had done. They went back, they revisited the cities, and their goal in these visits, coming back through, was to strengthen the souls of the disciples. Now, the soul is something that comes up frequently in the Bible. Most of us have this idea of the soul as some kind of ghost in the machine, as somebody called it in the 20th century, some sort of vague spiritual force that is what gives life to your body. And because of that, uh, modern translations, especially the NIV, have completely silenced references to the soul. You won't see that word very frequently in the NIV. They translate it instead as life, or they leave it out. So, I believe that in the NIV, this verse says, strengthening the disciples, instead of strengthening the souls of the disciples. Now, what's, what's the big deal? Why is the Bible so big on the soul? Why does it mention the soul all the time? And what even is the soul? So we know that in popular Christian usage, the soul is the part that goes to heaven. The soul is the part that needs to be saved. The body is expendable. That's not why the Bible uses the word soul. That's not what it's trying to suggest. That God is saving your soul, but he doesn't care about the body. God is saving the body too. Rather, the soul is the part that makes you go. It is the act of the body that has life. It is the act of living, which is why the NIV translates it life. But the act of living is not quite the same thing as life. The strength in the soul essentially means to give more spirit, more oomph, more power to push back against the crushing weight of this world, the weight of suffering, the problems and cares and concerns of the day. We all know people who are more spirited and vigorous, who seem to glow really brightly and have a very strong internal fire that keeps them going all the time. And we know other people who are more sluggish. What is... (laughs) How does one of Shakespeare's characters put it? Heavy, slow, and pale as lead. And to strengthen the soul doesn't mean putting them on the bench, getting them lifting weights, and giving them protein powder so that their bodies can do more. It means to enhance that spirited part The part that allows you to be vigorous, to push back, to care fiercely, and to struggle valiantly against the difficulties of life. That's what the apostles are doing as they strengthen the soul. It's not that they don't care about the body. The body is important. God is saving the body and will resurrect the body at the last day. But you can go to hell with a great body. And uh, need I say the words Hollywood. The word Hollywood. You can go to hell with a great body. There's a great soul, a soul that's valiant for truth, that's strong to continue to strive for the right, to stick to Jesus, to continue in the things 
that have been taught. That's the apostles' goal. They want to put some spirit into you, put some heart into you, so you can get up and keep after it. That's why they went back to Iconium. Obviously, it was Paul's spirit, his inner drive, his soul, that allowed him to get up after he was stoned in the previous two verses and go back into the city. And his goal is to do that for all of the saints. So how do the apostles do this? How do they put heart into the converts? Well, Luke tells us their methods. They have four things that they do. The first thing they do is to exhort or encourage. To say, continue in the faith. They just tell the disciples, they tell the baby Christians, stay Christian. Now it's amazing how well this actually works. We know that somebody who's encouraged to do something should be more likely to do it than somebody who isn't encouraged to do it. And so it is here. When you come to church, you get encouraged. We all know that if you come in here, you're talking afterwards and you say, I had a rough week. My faith was really challenged this week. What, what are you going to hear if you say that afterwards this morning? Is anybody going to tell you, yeah, it's probably time to give up? Yeah, honestly, I think you'd be better off as an atheist. You know what? Christianity isn't worth it. I agree. That's not what you're going to hear. You're going to hear encouragement. You're going to hear an exhortation. Continue in the faith. Don't give up. Here's why your faith is right. Here's why you should stick with it. It's worth it, people. Stay with Jesus. That's what you're going to hear. And of course, that's what our whole service is constructed around. We sing Psalm 121. Where does my help come from? From God the Lord doth come my certain aid. When we affirm to each other and back to God that God is our help, that we lift up our eyes to the hills, but God is where our help comes from. And He won't let the sun strike us by day, the moon by night. He keeps our soul from every evil. He keeps our life that's the direct statement of the psalmist. And we sing that. We encourage each other. We encourage ourselves to continue in the faith. Also interesting that Luke uses faith here as what is taught. Not as the act of believing, but as the content which is believed. Continue to believe that content. Stay a Christian. Remain someone who believes that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again. So that's how the apostles put heart into the disciples. The first thing they do is encourage them. And just say directly, stick with it. Don't give up. Just like your personal trainer saying, you got one more rep, one more rep, one more rep, one more rep. You can do it. You have that encouragement from the apostles. And we all know and we encourage each other here. The second thing the apostles do is teach, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So they directly teach, and the thing they teach is, this is not going to be easy. You didn't sign up for a walk in the park. 
You didn't sign up to test sleep number beds. You, you signed up for something tough. We must, through many tribulations, right? As I said last week, not one or two tribulations, 30 years apart, but many tribulations, regular tribulations, suffering on a daily, hourly basis. That's the Christian life. They didn't try to hide it. They didn't try to skirt around it. Obviously, these people had seen Paul and Barnabas attacked, driven out, the subject of riots, stonings, etc. So Paul stands up, and his body is one big bruise, and he's in a cast, or he's in traction there in the hospital bed, and he says, you've got to suffer to enter the kingdom. And they all look at him, and they're like, well, I know you mean it, Paul. It's obvious. You're not making this up. Paul doesn't say it from the Barca lounger. He doesn't get off his private jet, flick the lace, the, the dust off the lace at his wrist, and then say, there's going to be some suffering in this world, my friends, <coughs> after he takes a big sip of lemonade. No, that's not. There is suffering, and that's the direct teaching. Here, this will put some heart into you. Life is pain. The Christian life is pain. And suffering, then, is core to our faith. Suffering is here at the center of Acts. We're at the end of 14 out of 28 chapters. We're right at the middle. And what is at the center of Acts? Suffering. Pain is at the center of this account of the kingdom of God. And Luke juxtaposes suffering and the kingdom. Remember we saw that Acts is about the growth and progress of the kingdom. The book begins and ends with references to the kingdom of God and here in the middle is another reference to the kingdom. As Jesus comes, as Jesus ruled, travels around the Mediterranean and converts people and brings them out of Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom, what goes along with that? Suffering. Exiting Satan's kingdom, coming into God's kingdom is not a painless process. Living in God's kingdom is not a painless process. That is how the apostles put heart into their converts. They told them there will be suffering. The kingdom is coming. Jesus really rules. Jesus rules over sickness, over pain. Yes, he does, but the fact that we have sickness, that we have pain, that we have suffering and persecution of all kinds is not a refutation of the reign of Christ. And in other words, the apostles are confronting the problem of evil head on and saying, the fact that evil exists and that it's coming for you and that you will experience it is not any sort of refutation of the truth that Jesus reigns. We've all talked to those people. One of the people who lives right next to this church, a neighbor of the church, I was talking to him in the parking lot one day, and he said to me, I'm Catholic, but I haven't been to church in 28 years. I said, well, why not? Well, my sister lived in North Dakota, and she was the victim of a home invasion. Some crook came in there and shot her and her four kids dead in their house one night. 
And I haven't been back to church since. What is Luke saying? The reality of pain and suffering in this world is not evidence that Christianity is false. It's not evidence that God is fake or that God has failed or that Jesus doesn't really reign. Don't ever take your pain and say, I guess Jesus isn't in charge. My kids aren't walking with the Lord. I guess Jesus doesn't rule. I have cancer. I guess Jesus doesn't rule. My mom went bankrupt and she refuses financial help and now my beloved parent is homeless and living out of the trash can somewhere. God must not rule. No, you can't say that. Suffering is part of the Christian life. And you hear this message and that's what puts heart into you to keep going. We want to say to the apostles, wait, you're trying to encourage these converts? You're trying to put some spirit into them? Aren't you going to tell them the Christian life is great? Jesus solves your problems? They did say that, right? Jesus solves your biggest problem, the problem of sin. But in order to encourage people to stay with it, they say up front, yes, it's hard to be a Christian. The world, the flesh, and the devil will be opposed to you all the time. You will suffer. The growth of the church from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the othermost parts of the earth is not some kind of painless process. It hurts. So we put it this way, eating tasty meals is not central to the Christian life. Being respected by your fellow man is not central to the Christian life. Exercising political power or cultural clout is not central to the Christian life. The apostles teach instead that getting hurt in ways large and small by people, by animals, by demons, by other supernatural forces, by blind historical forces or dumb luck, that is central to the Christian life. And the reason it's central to the Christian life is because we serve the dying God, the Christ who was executed, hung on the cross for us. Right, That's our creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. The only word about Jesus' life is he suffered. And therefore, should we expect that our lives will be summed up by he triumphed. He had a great life. She lived better than any human being had a right to live. We serve a Christ who suffered and therefore we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Suffering is normal and necessary, and if you think it's abnormal and unnecessary, you are weakening your soul so that you won't stick with Jesus. How else did the apostles strengthen? They taught, yes, there's suffering. They also appointed elders in every church. That's the human counterpart to being in God's care. 
Yes, there's suffering. And that suffering does not negate the reign of Christ. But there's also a church with elders. Every church has elders, and it's plural. Not one elder, but multiple elders. The church needs multiple elders to continue. What do these elders do? Well, the name elder refers to their status. They're over the flock. They should be respected as seniors or Senator is the Latin equivalent of the English word elder or the Greek word presbyter, which is the word that Luke uses here, presbyter. These people should be respected. Luke also calls them overseers to describe their job. What do they do? They watch over the church. They make sure that the church is run well. They supervise the teaching and preaching of the word of God. They lead in worship. They are under God the shepherds of the flock, the ones who care for the people of God. And every church needs this in order to strengthen the souls of the disciples. Someone in a church with elders is someone whose soul is being strengthened. Someone in a church without elders or someone not in a church, someone without elders watching over him, is someone whose soul is being weakened. Paul and Barnabas made it their mission to appoint elders in every church, presumably along the lines of Acts 6 and the selection of the deacons, where they take nominations from the congregation. The congregation then elects the candidates from the slate, and then the apostles or elders ordain those elders. That's what happened back in Acts 6. Presumably Luke intends us to see the same process here. This is how you can strengthen your soul. Suffering per se doesn't strengthen your soul, though it does produce character, and character produces hope. Suffering produces perseverance, which produces character, Peter says, or Paul says. But you can definitely, if you want to strengthen your soul, submit yourself to the care of the elders, and you do that by joining the church, by officially standing before everyone and saying, yes, I want to be subject to these elders. I want my soul strengthened by these guys. The ones that Christ has called to shepherd and strengthen this particular flock. So Paul and Barnabas found those for every, yeah, for every church. Now again, we've talked about this in today's mission situations. You shouldn't necessarily expect to have new converts ready to go as elders after six months, like Paul and Barnabas found. These are probably men who had been faithful in the Jewish synagogue, who had exercised rule there, who were familiar with the Bible, who had known it for years. They, on the day they were converted, they weren't baby Christians in many ways. If you take somebody who's coming out of 15 generations of tribal idolatry in the jungles of New Guinea, and he says, yes, I believe in Jesus, he's not necessarily ready to be an elder in six months. Anyhow, I'm going to read to you a little bit more from the Book of Church Order, what our official statement is on, here's what an elder does. It belongs to those in the office of elder to watch diligently over the flock committed to their charge, that no corruption of doctrine or morals enters there. They must exercise government and discipline and take oversight not only of the spiritual interests of the particular church, 
but also the church generally when called to it. They should visit the people at their homes, especially the sick. They should instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children of the church. They should set a worthy example to the flock entrusted to their care by their zeal to evangelize the unconverted and make disciples. All those duties which private Christians are bound to discharge by the law of love are especially incumbent upon elders by divine vocation and are to be discharged as official duties. They should pray with and for the people, being careful and diligent in seeking the fruit of the preached word among the flock. Luke says, this is who Paul and Barnabas found. People who would be diligent to seek the fruit of the proclamation of Jesus in every church, in Iconium, in Antioch, in Lystra, in Derby, this is what the church needed to be strong. So that's the human counterpart to being in God's care. Every Christian is in God's care. But the way God cares for us is by putting us under the protection of elders in the ecclesiastical realm. Just as in the civil realm, he puts us under the protection of the state. We are safe from being harassed and invaded because the state provides armed forces and boundaries and processes that deter aggressors and that keep wrongdoers from our own or other places at bay. And so it is with the church, the elders are there to shepherd the flock, to guard against the wolves, and to ensure that the sheep are well fed and protected. But Paul and Barnabas did what they could to strengthen the souls of the disciples. They encouraged, they taught, they appointed elders. But at the end of the day, they recognized we can't force anybody's soul to be strong. We can't drag these people into heaven. We can encourage them. We can give them elders. We can teach them. But at the end of the day, it's God who gets them to heaven. And so they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We talked about this last week, the the strength of faith that says, baby church, fly free. We have to go now. You can do it. It's what Paul and Barnabas did. One of the great missions mistakes of the last 200 years, according to the missions historians and experts, is that in too many places, missionaries have hung on and said, don't fly free, baby church. You're going to fail. You need me right here watching you. In fact, yeah, I don't think you're going to do well at all without me. Now, we can understand why people would say that. But Paul and Barnabas left and said, you're in God's hands. We're out of here. That was their calling. And you are in God's hands. And we as your elders entrust you to God. That's why we pray for you. Why I try to pray for each of you on a daily basis. That's how we commit you to God and say, Lord, these people will not get to heaven without you. No matter how strong their spirits are. You and I need God's power to get us all the way there. So how do you stay Christian? 
get exhorted, get taught, get under the rule and protection of elders, and entrust yourself to God. Lord, you're the one that will have to get me to heaven. I can't get there by my own power. You can bring me there. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. They taught, Jesus saves. Entrust yourself to Him. And they entrusted these people to Christ and went back to Antioch. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would help us to stay Christian. Help us to understand the suffering that's central to the kingdom and therefore central to the Christian life. Not to rebel against it, or decide that we must be doing something wrong because we're suffering. Sometimes we are doing something wrong, but Father, even if we're doing everything right, there's still suffering in the Christian life. We ask that you would strengthen our souls, that you would help us to encourage each other, even in the midst of suffering. We praise you for the elders you've given us in this church. We pray that you would continue to provide elders for us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to enter the kingdom of heaven. We entrust ourselves to you now. Into your hands we commit our spirit. You have redeemed us, faithful God. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.